Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 84, Lepanto. First, as always, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporter. That's Duncan Kernahan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And another quick note, I'd like to kind of send a big thank you to my friend and the host of the Bulgarian language version of this podcast, Georgi Kolov, for contributing research and some writing about the Battle of Lepanto, which I'll be covering in this episode. He wrote a whole script about it, so I pulled some of his kind of choicest, juiciest bits to help reinforce my own research, and he was a big help, as always. So last time, we saw a rather absurd con man rise to power in Moldavia. The Barbary pirates became an even greater power in the eastern Mediterranean and Atlantic, and peace finally came to the Habsburgs and Ottomans. This allowed the Ottomans to set out in a disastrous war against Russia, which ultimately got them their economic aims anyways, despite a military loss. Importantly, John Zapolia finally died, making Maximilian the uncontested king of Hungary, along with his title of Holy Roman Emperor. However, for now, peace has managed to come to the Ottoman Habsburg frontier. Instead, the Ottomans are now turning their gaze to Cyprus and its Venetian owners. Now, Cyprus was an obvious prize. It was the last bit of territory in the eastern Mediterranean which the Ottomans did not already control, with the exception of Crete, if you want to count Crete as being in there. It had a substantial population, profitable cotton and sugar plantations, and it was a base from which the Venetians could harass Ottoman trade. Now, previously, the Venetians had paid the Mamluks for the island's safety, but no such deal is possible now because the Mamluks no longer exist. Sultan Selim II had wanted Cyprus just as bad as his forefathers wanted the island of Rhodes. Uh, and so he was really determined to get the island at all costs. And so while Selim's focus on Cyprus wasn't, was a major kind of policy goal of his administration, there were some complexities behind it. A Jewish man from Portugal who had fled persecution there, named Joseph Nasi, had become a high-ranking diplomat and official within the Ottoman Empire. Now, he eventually maneuvered into Sultan Selim's good graces and had been appointed to rule some Aegean islands. Within the court, he pressed hard for an invasion, despite the peace treaty which had been signed with Venice just three years earlier. Ultimately, he was successful. The head Islamic scholar uh, of the Ottoman Empire said that an invasion was justified because the island had once been conquered by Muslims, so technically it could be considered Muslim land, which was only being reconquered. And so, preparations were underway. Land which had been controlled by Greek monasteries was sold in order to help finance the whole expedition. Now, the Venetians were by this time well aware of Ottoman intentions, and frankly had been for many years. The island's defenses were reinforced, but it was pretty clear that the ability of Venice to defend the island 
was limited. They had already lost three wars against the Ottomans, and let's say hopes were not high for this one. In addition, many of the local Cypriots resented Venice for its high taxes, a pattern we've seen repeat time and time again when territories are conquered by the Ottomans. The existing rulers don't treat the population very well and tax them very highly, and so there's some sentiment that, well, maybe things will actually be better under the Ottomans. In addition, the fact that Cyprus was surrounded by Ottoman territories and that the Habsburgs were too busy suppressing the Dutch revolt and, of course, had just made peace with the Ottomans made the whole situation even more tenuous. Lastly, the fact that the Cypriots were generally Orthodox Christians and the Venetians were Catholic certainly didn't help the situation. So you could say it was a perfect storm for Venice. In March of 1570, an envoy arrived and presented the Venetians with an ultimatum, demanding the immediate secession of Cyprus to the Ottomans. Now, some wished to trade the island for territories close to home in Dalmatia, as well as better trading rights, but ultimately the war party won out, and so Venice decided it would fight for its island. Within weeks of the ultimatum's rejection, a massive fleet left Constantinople for Cyprus. It consisted of nearly 400 ships and somewhere between 60 and 100,000 men a large land force by Ottoman standards, and a truly immense one by naval standards. Now, Venice debated opposing the landing of this force, but ultimately decided it simply couldn't risk the potential losses, and so the Ottomans landed unopposed and began to move towards the Cypriot capital of Nicosia. Now, Nicosia had a state-of-the-art defense system. It's you know, massive defensive walls were in the shape of an 11-pointed star, with each point containing gun batteries. Importantly, it also was constructed of packed earth, which, if you'll remember the episode on the conquest of Constantinople, packed earth is much better able to absorb the kinetic energy of cannon fire than hard stone. Think of it as if you drop a glass on a hard floor, the glass will surely shatter. Whereas if you drop something like a beanbag, it's not going to break. And part of the reason for that is that brittleness, right? Uh, The fact that the beanbag can reabsorb and and its kind of uh, molecules can move around as it lands means it can absorb that kinetic energy much better. And so this lesson had been learned when it came to fortress construction. And all these lessons were implemented in Nicosia. So... The Ottomans approached this with, well, this new technology with their own new technology, and they used sappers to get close to the walls while covering the sappers with arquebus fire, which, in case you forgot, an arquebus is kind of an early version of a rifle. But ultimately, Nicosia was similar to so many other powerful cities which fell to the Ottomans. Despite its impressive walls, the city was doomed by something far more innocuous. It ran out of ammunition. All that money spent on those walls, and they ran out of ammunition. The city lasted just seven weeks. A massacre ensued where the women and children were sold into slavery and the men of the city killed. Nearly the entire city population of around 20,000 people were thus dispatched by the Ottomans. 
Now, only two substantial Venetian fortresses remained on the island. The next one the Ottomans came to was Kyrenia, which surrendered almost immediately. That left only Famagusta. The first Ottoman cavalry arrived at the walls of Famagusta in mid-September, just a few months after the initial landings. The city was defended by around 8,500 men, but unlike Kyrenia, it decided to resist, likely because they had real hope that reinforcements might be on their way, and the fortress was able to be reinforced by sea. And so, under these circumstances, the city held out for 11 months against relentless Ottoman attacks, despite the fact that they were outnumbered maybe around 10 to 1. The Ottomans took heavy losses, possibly into the tens of thousands. But by the end, the city had just 900 defenders still holding out. Now, Venice had been busy assembling an alliance to fight the Ottomans, and this alliance was called the Holy League. It was really the Pope who managed to pull Venice and the Habsburgs together into this league, despite the fact that, again, the Habsburgs were generally pretty distracted, but the Pope convinced them to contribute some resources. The agreement to form the Holy League was reached just about the time that Famagusta fell. But the Holy League wasn't aware that Cyprus had completely fallen to the Ottomans, and so their assembled fleet set out to meet them in September of 1571. Now, the naval forces of the Holy League consisted of men and ships from Venice, the Spanish Empire, i.e. the Habsburgs, the Pope, Genoa, the Knights of Malta, the Duchies of Tuscany, Savoy, and Urbino, the Knights of St. Lazarus, and the Order of St. Stephen. Together, they had 212 ships, compared to the Ottomans, 278. So, they were outnumbered, but not by a substantial amount. Still, importantly, the Holy League had more experienced infantry with more arquebuses, more of those rifles, nearly three times as many as the Ottomans. Also importantly, while the Spanish had excellent infantry, below deck on the Spanish ships were slaves and criminals. Now, the reason for this is quite fascinating. Some of you who are interested in world history in general might know that when Spain got all of its new world colonies, it imported massive amounts of gold and silver. And at the time, gold and silver, right, was money. So more money, great. The idea was this is going to make the Spanish exceptionally wealthy. But there was a problem. All you uh, people who studied economics out there might have a sense of what's about to happen, and that is inflation. The fact that Spain flooded the European markets with all this new gold and silver massively decreased the value of that gold and silver, which made it impossible for the Spanish to pay oarsmen, leading to them having to use slaves and criminals instead. And this is important to note because a lot of kind of accounts of this uh, battle state state that it was actually um, the Ottomans who largely used Christian slaves as their oarsmen, but with the well, help of Georgi Kolev, again, my friend and collaborator here, he did some very in-depth research on this and found that that's largely a myth. It's just not true, and it's just sort of commonly a common refrain that's repeated about this battle. But getting back to what happened. Now, there was some bad weather and a few conflicts between the Spanish and Venetian soldiers, but despite all of this, the Holy League's fleet 
slowly moved along the western coast of Greece until they reached the mouth of the Gulf of Patras. Now, the Gulf of Patras is that strip of water that juts into Greece, which divides Morea, or the Peloponnesus as you might know it, from the rest of the peninsula. Uh, now there's sort of uh, the, the um, what do you call it, uh, the thing ships can go through at Corinth that they've built. Uh, I'm forgetting the word, but you know what I mean. So anyways, they're passing by the Gulf of Patras, and there they meet the Ottoman fleet. And both forces decide that they will immediately engage. As the battle approaches, the Holy League commander is quoted as telling his force simply, there's no paradise for cowards. And both sides knew that this was a monumental moment because both sides were committing the vast majority of their naval capabilities in one battle. A substantial loss by either side would dramatically alter the balance of power in the Mediterranean in an instant. Now, earlier in the day, the wind was at the back of the Ottomans, causing fear they might be able to use this to rush in and attack before the Holy League's fleet was properly assembled. But the wind soon shifted, allowing the Holy League's ships to assemble and get into position before battle began. Now, this was crucial, as the Ottomans really needed to get in close and fight hand-to-hand in order to negate the Holy League's advantage in those guns, both guns on the ships, kind of cannons, and in rifles. Now, the Holy League was using galleasses, which was a kind of newly developed, very powerful type of ship. And the front and the left wing, as well as the center, were using them extensively. And these really shocked and sort of baffled the Ottoman commander, Ali Pasha, with their size and how far they were from the rest of the fleet. They were really off to the side at this point. And because of their size, they were impossible to board or to incapacitate with the arrows that the Ottoman fleet used. And so the Ottomans sort of passed them by while taking great damage from the cannonballs of these ships without being able to really inflict any damage on them themselves. In this moment, the Ottoman right flank tried to get around and outflank the Venetians, but the Venetian commander quickly ordered his entire fleet to reform and successfully pinned the Ottomans against the shallow shores. Fierce fighting commenced, and the Venetians almost broke, seeing their commander take an arrow to the eye. In the center, the Christian cannons broke the Ottoman ships apart. Ottoman boarding parties tried to recruit those Spanish slaves and criminals to their cause, but generally to no avail. On the other flank, the galleasses could not be deployed in the front in time, and so they were rendered useless during the entire four-hour battle, giving the Ottomans a potential area to really excel. And frankly, unlike the other two fronts here, both commanders were trying to outmaneuver each other, but the Christian wing managed to get sort of carried away, as they tried to stay in line, and this caused a huge gap to open in their lines. Seeing this gap form, the Ottoman fleet quickly rushed in, using their superior speed and maneuverability to get in and attack the center through this uh, opening. And this is when the Christian rear guard masterfully deployed its ships exactly when and where they were needed to counteract this sudden attack. The Ottoman flagship Sultana flew a giant green banner with passages of the Quran written upon it. Acting like a beacon, many galleys tried to board it. Then the Holy League flagship, the Real, helmed by the Christian commander, rammed against the Sultana 
and began to board it. Another Spanish galley tied itself to the back of the Real, adding more infantry to fight against the elite Janissaries, while a Venetian flagship provided cover from the left. After much fighting, Ali Pasha, the Ottoman commander, was shot dead, and his head was put on a spike for all to see. With this, and with the turning of the battle, the Ottoman morale began to break. Some soldiers escaped, but it was clear to everyone that for the Ottomans, the battle was lost. When the smoke cleared, the Holy League had won an immense victory. 137 ships had been captured, 50 had been sunk. Together, that was almost exactly two-thirds of all the Ottoman ships. On the Holy League side, they had lost just 13 ships. The Ottomans had lost 30,000 soldiers with another 10,000 taken prisoner, while the Holy League suffered around 7,500 deaths. All in all, it had been nearly a century since the Ottomans had suffered a major naval defeat. During that time, their navy had allowed them to really dominate the Mediterranean, to take islands, take cities, disrupt trade, and generally cause all sorts of problems for the Christian powers. Still, just after this victory, a harsh winter came, which prevented the Holy League from following up on their success. During this time, the Ottomans quickly rebuilt their naval strength. A total of 250 more ships were built in just six months, more than replacing all the ships that had just been lost at Lepanto. Still, the Ottomans could not so easily replace the experienced men who had commanded the ships that were lost. And so, while the Battle of Lepanto did not signal an end to Ottoman naval power, far from it, it did signal an end to their real dominance. With this victory, the Mediterranean was more effectively divided in half, with the east dominated by the Ottomans, in the West by the Christian powers. Historian Paul K. Davis put it simply, stating, quote, This Turkish defeat stopped Ottoman expansion into the Mediterranean, thus maintaining Western dominance, and confidence grew in the West that Turks, previously unstoppable, could be beaten. End quote. An Ottoman diplomat in Venice also summed up the general result well. Quote, you come to see how we bear our misfortune. But I would have you know the difference between your loss and ours. In wresting Cyprus from you, we deprived you of an arm. In defeating our fleet, you have only shaved our beard. An arm, when cut off, cannot grow again. But a shorn beard will grow all the better for the razor. End quote. So that gives you a good idea of the sort of large-scale geopolitical effects, but also, well, just how the Ottomans felt about how the war was going at this point. That was because during this time, while the Venetians were suffering, lo were suffering losses in Dalmatia, with many important towns there being burned down or raided. And so, in spite of this huge victory at Lepanto, you could say the war was just not going well. Now, a quick side note here, while the Ottomans had been busy conquering Cyprus, our old friend John Zapolia finally died, childless, at the age of 30. His last remaining role as Voivoda of Transylvania was taken over by a man named Stephen Bathory, who was soon to be the husband of the Queen of Poland and Grand Duchess of Lithuania, making him sort of, in effect, King of Poland and Grand Duke, though I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. This meant that 
While the Habsburg, Maximilian II, was still Holy Roman Emperor and now was the sole owner of the title King of Hungary, Bathory was not set up as a major rival to him. And so while John Zapolya had sometimes worked with Maximilian and at other times really contested his title of King of Hungary, it seemed that now the Habsburgs were firmly in control of that title. No one was going to challenge it anymore. But now back to the Ottoman-Venetian War. The next year in 1572, the Ottomans had all those many ships that had been hastily built, but they weren't constructed very well and they had inexperienced crews, as I kind of alluded to. But no surprise, as usual, disagreements among the members of the Holy League prevented them from really coming in with a strong attack against the Ottomans. In addition, the death of the Pope that year deprived the alliance of its main point of focus. Remember, the Pope was really the glue of this alliance. His personal diplomacy had brought it together. And so, as a result, not very much happened in the Venetian War during 1572. But over in Moldavia, Bogdan IV died and was replaced by John III. Now, John was the grandson of Stephen the Great and exceptionally well-versed in Ottoman culture and military matters, making him, by all accounts, an ideal ruler to challenge them. But, well, we'll have to wait and see if he does. Now, by 1573, the Holy League was basically coming apart and failed to even send out a fleet at all to challenge the Ottomans. Instead, the Habsburg commander set off on his own and took Tunis in North Africa from the Ottomans. Venice, well, they could see the writing on the wall. They could see the war was only going to get worse for them as the Holy League came apart, and so they sued for peace, and the Holy League was formally disbanded. Now, despite the victory of Lepanto, Venice was clearly the loser of the war. In the peace agreement, it gave up Cyprus, paid 300,000 ducats, and lost important agricultural land in Dalmatia. Then, the very next year in 1574, to further show that the Ottomans had recovered and were in a strong position in the Mediterranean, they retook Tunis yet again from the Spanish Habsburgs. With this conquest, the Ottomans decided to finally end the local Muslim Hafsid dynasty, which had ruled that portion of central North Africa for nearly three and a half centuries, taking direct control over the area instead. Now, this also helped take some pressure off the Dutch in their ongoing revolt, this uh, kind of fighting the Habsburgs in this area. Now, elsewhere, back in Moldavia, just two years after taking power, John III showed that he was indeed as daring as his grandfather, Stephen the Great, and he decided to stop paying tribute to the Ottomans. This resulted in an invasion by a joint Ottoman and Wallachian army. The Moldavians, along with some Cossack cavalry, ambushed and defeated the invading force. Selim II then sent an even larger army, which successfully defeated the Moldavians. John negotiated his personal surrender in exchange for his army being allowed to live. He was allegedly tied to four camels, each one tied of his body parts, and then he was pulled to pieces. His army, despite the agreement, was then killed mercilessly. Now, you may have heard, uh, if you're researching this or looking on the website, that John's nickname was The Terrible. Well, just so you know, this title was given 
not by his people, but by the boyars, several of whom he executed as he solidified his power base. So, well, they weren't too fond of the man. Now, John was replaced by Peter VI, also known as Peter the Lame, who had been raised by the Ottomans in Istanbul, barely knew Moldavia at all, and so was a pliant ruler who would do what he was told. Meanwhile, in Wallachia, Alexander II Merkea was briefly overthrown by Vintalia of Wallachia. And within a year, though, Alexander was back on the throne. But more momentous ev- events were happening all the way back in Constantinople, because the Sultan, Selim II, died at the age of just 50, weeks before the end of the year 1574. Now, fortunately for the Ottomans, he had only given his eldest son a governor's position. So instead of, as usual, seeing which of the sons could get to the capital first, the result was a fairly clean transfer of power to the 22-year-old Murad III. This transfer of power was aided by the fact that Murad immediately had his five younger brothers strangled, a uh, you know tradition we'll see uh, building up over the years and the decades and the centuries. But having seen so many Ottoman civil wars, it should be clear why this was his policy. Now, meanwhile, European politics were really changing. There was a fraction within Poland and Lithuania leading some of the people who elected the monarchs of these two countries to decide to make Maximilian II, the Habsburg, their new monarch, wanting to kind of unify those states. But this sentiment didn't last as the, those elected were sort of outmaneuvered and Bathory and his wife, the, who I mentioned earlier, were reinstalled as the rulers. But in any case, within a year, Maximilian was dead and succeeded by his son, Rudolf II, who was quickly made Holy Roman Emperor, King of Hungary, basically all the titles his father had held. And so the division between Poland and Lithuania and the Habsburgs really remained. Over in France, that Franco-Ottoman alliance that sort of pops up on occasion was back on. And with this alliance in place, there was a planned attack on the Habsburgs in Spain, where the Ottomans were going to sort of use the remaining Muslim population there to assist. However, for reasons I couldn't quite nail down, the Ottoman fleet never left, and so the alliance sort of went back into its hibernation state. One possible reason for this was that Murad was planning to focus his attention elsewhere and didn't really want to get involved in Spain at just this moment, but more on that later. Now, also during this year, 1576, the Banyabashi Mosque was constructed in Sofia. Now, it was possibly designed by Sinan, arguably the greatest architect in Ottoman history, though more likely it was designed by the school he ran, though he probably played some role. The mosque is still there today, in the middle of Sofia, right next to the thermal springs uh, that it's named after. That's the Banya part of Banya Bashi. And today, incidentally, it is the only functioning mosque left in Sofia, for reasons that we'll have to get into when we cover the late 19th century. But it's still there. I walk by it most days. You can still hear the call to prayer. And yeah, it's still a functioning mosque even after uh, these many centuries. Now, also in 1576, the Ottomans completed a major milestone. By aiding a local Moroccan ruler's conquest of the ancient city of Fez, they finally completed their control over the entire North African coast, 
with the exception of three Spanish-controlled cities. Again, this meant that while their domination in the eastern Mediterranean was absolute, despite the loss at Lepanto, the Ottomans could still project their naval power all the way to the western Mediterranean when they needed to. So, that again, just sort of gives you some context for what effects Lepanto did and did not have. In 1577, Alexander II Merkea of Wallachia was poisoned and then succeeded by his wife, who served as a regent for their son, uh, Minheya Turkitul, or yeah, Minheya the Turned Turk. Um, sorry, my Romanian is not that excellent, but he was called Turned Turk because he was an Ottoman prisoner at the time, and so you can see this kind of signals a step in the ever-weakening power of the rulers of Wallachia and Moldavia, as both states are now ruled by men who basically grew up in Constantinople under Ottoman sway. And so both of them are, well, look to be at least, extremely pliant Ottoman vassals. Now, one reason the Ottomans may not have wanted to focus so much on Spain with their kind of alliance with France and Clearly, they were feeling that the Balkans were secure with their dominance of Wallachia and Moldavia pretty well nailed down in this, and with fighting between the Austrian Habsburgs and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth leading to a you know remote uh, kind of possibility of either those states attacking the Ottomans. Well, so yeah, why would, uh, with the kind of whole European front very secure, why would the Ottomans not want to go out and fight in Spain? Well, the reason seems to probably have been that Murad II had his eye on the east, that is, on the Safavids. Now, these two great Islamic empires, the Ottomans and the Safavids, had been at peace for just over two decades. But there was a strong pro-war faction in the Ottoman court. And like his father, Murad was a relatively weak and sort of yeah, not, not a terribly, terribly decisive ruler, and was heavily influenced by people like his mother and his grand viziers, as well as some other local notables who led their own factions within court life. With the recent death of the Safavid Shah and an offer by the Uzbeks to help fight on two fronts along with the Ottomans, Murad, or whoever had his ear at the moment, felt that they couldn't possibly turn down this opportunity. And so that's where we'll end it today. The Ottomans have won yet another war against the Venetians. They've conquered Cyprus, suffered and recovered from a major naval loss, extended their control of North Africa, Wallachia, and Moldavia, and now they look east yet again. Next time, we'll see just what happens between the Ottomans and the Safavids. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check us out on Facebook, check out the website, bghistorypodcast.com, for photos and more information about the episode and a timeline. And as always, if you or someone you know might like it, check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. Thanks, and I'll catch you guys in the next one.